Flyers Daily with Jason Mertides. All right, December 9th edition of Flyers Daily with Jason Mertides. Goalies Week will continue. Brian Boucher will be our guest on this episode, but we do have some Flyers notes and we have some NHL notes. But let's start with the Flyers notes because Chuck Fletcher has announced that uh, the Flyers have signed their young defenseman, 23-year-old Philip Myers. Of course, went undrafted. The Flyers have agreed to terms with the restricted free agent on a three-year contract with an average annual value of $2.55 million. And that is according to President of Hockey Operations and General Manager Chuck Fletcher. Uh, a bridge deal very similar to Travis Sanheim's. Uh, so good news for Flyer fans that when the Flyers do open up an abbreviated training camp, Phil Myers will be under contract. Here's the quote from Chuck Fletcher regarding the signing. He said, quote, we're happy to have Phil sign for the next three seasons. He's a big, mobile, right-shot defenseman who progressed into a top-four role on our blue line last season. We look forward to his continued growth. And again, last year was Myers, technically his rookie NHL season. And in the uh, on the year, he ended up with 16 points, four goals and 12 assists over 50 games. That was in the 2019-20 season. Of course, that season was cut short, uh, the regular season as well. And he was also the leading team defenseman in plus-minus with a plus-17. And that rating tied him for second among all NHL rookies. Myers scored goals in three consecutive games from November 7th through the 10th and also became just the seventh Flyers defenseman to do so and the first since Mark Howe back in 1987. So good to get Phil Myers under contract and ready for training camp whenever that would be. And we're starting to get a little clarity on that situation as well. NHL headlines right now, and it seems as if the NHL and the NHLPA have agreed to terms on the financial part, which is in essence is to stick with the agreement that happened back in July for the original return to play. Now the league and players are ironing out the details and protocols and everything else that goes into playing hockey, NHL hockey, during a pandemic. It looks like the season, the date they want to start the season is January 13th, and it would be a 56-game schedule. Uh, will they start in hub cities for at least the first couple of weeks? That is still to be determined, uh, but it looks like the majority of the games, if not all, will be played in home buildings. And again, 56-game schedule, uh, season starting on January 13th. Looks like players will go to training camp uh, right after the new year. And the seven teams that did not make the return to play at the end of the summer, that would be the Devils, Ducks, Kings, Red Wings, Sabres, Senators, and Sharks, may get a couple of extra days. Maybe not a full week more of training camp, uh, but maybe about four to five days more of training camp since they haven't been on the ice as a team in any capacity since the pause happened around March 13th. So uh, we're hoping the NHL, it looks uh, promising right now. Nothing's done till it's done. Uh, but January 13th, right now, the tentative start date to the season, about 35 days from now. So great news. Great news as well. If you missed any of the past Goalie Week guests, including Martin Biron, including Michael Layton, including Robert Esch, who was our Monday guest, you can go back and check those out. And our guest today, he was a Flyers first-round draft pick, and they've only taken a goalie in the first round twice in the franchise's history. Here's my conversation with former Flyer, now NHL and NBC analyst, Brian Boucher. Uh, joining us right now on Flyers Goalie Week, you know this guy was going to be on. Uh, he's one of the only two first-round pick goaltenders the Flyers have ever had, and uh, one of the good guys and doing great work on the NHL and NBC. It's former Flyer goaltender, Brian Boucher. Boucher, how you doing? Doing good, Jason. Uh, just moved into a new house, so I've been busy, uh, which is good. Unfortunately, no hockey being played right now, but 
I have plenty to do around the house. That's for sure. <laughs> now, are you a handy guy? Not really. Um, I'd like to think I am. I think uh, I can paint. That's about it. But I, I don't know that I'd build anything. But uh, I certainly would like to try. But I don't think the I don't think my wife allows me to, you know, get after it. I think she doesn't trust me and my skills. And uh, to be honest, yeah, I don't blame her. I don't think I could build much of anything. Now, growing up in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, you had to be a fan of this old house. You remember watching that old show? I do. Yeah, I think that guy. I, I think it was he from Fall River, Mass. I think. Yeah, I'm not really sure. He had that but, really yeah. thick accent too. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, my it's funny. My uh, my my brothers. Uh, my dad had a construction company. Uh, it was a drywall business, but um, my brothers worked for my father but I was the youngest of four and for whatever reason my dad kept me out of the family business and kind of like allowed me to get away with just cleaning job sites when I was younger um but I never got the handy you know the handy side it's my brothers that have all that uh talent and I just I, I was fortunate just to play hockey what would um Brian Boucher have done if he couldn't stop pucks that's a great question. I don't know. I was kind of an, I was a bit of a nerd in school. Like I, oddly enough, I loved like meteorology and I'm was like fascinated by weather. So I don't know if I would have, you know, followed a science path along those lines and maybe gotten into that. Um, I don't know. I like, I would go nuts. Like if, you know, during the winter time when I was a kid, I would watch, we'd get the Boston networks and the Providence networks. And if we, there was like a nor'easter coming, I would watch all the networks to see who was forecasting the most snow. And whoever was forecasting the least amount of snow, I would get mad at them because I was like, I wanted you know, school to yeah. be canceled. So, but I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's just a, maybe all kids are into that stuff. Uh, but that was something that interested me. You could have been like a storm chaser with Jim Cantore or something. Oh, that'd be to chase <laughs> tornadoes. That'd be yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, just like being a goalie, it's it kind of takes a rare breed to do that. But yeah. but Boosh, you're one of the more normal goalies. H- have you heard that a lot throughout your career? Like a lot, like you got you've played with guys, and we're gonna talk about some that are that are friggin' bananas. We talked about yeah. Dominic Hashik with uh, uh with Marty Biron, like he was bananas. Um, Tim Thomas was bananas. We've heard stories about Ed Belfour. You're yeah. sane. Like, how did that happen? Did you just not get uh, hit enough? I don't know. I mean, I, I certainly had my uh, superstitions and I had my routines and stuff like that, but I, you could talk to me on game day. You could, you know, I was approachable. Uh, I mean, maybe when I say approachable, I mean, there were days I was grumpy. There's no doubt about that. I, I mean, if you had a bad game or a bad week or you're in a bad stretch, I mean, maybe you're not the most pleasant guy to be around. And when I look back on that time in my career, I probably I'm like, geez, I wish I would have been a little more mature and a little bit, you know, not such a baby about things. Right. I mean, um, but I think by and large, I was, I, I enjoyed being with my teammates. I loved being at the rink. I loved being in the locker room. I loved everything about that. So when I was in that environment, I tried my best to want to, you know, engage with my teammates. And I found that if I talked uh, during game day, that it, it helped, uh, you know, fend off some of the nerves uh, because there were a lot of nerves uh, on game day and leading up to big games. So, I mean, if you just sit there in your stall quietly and do your own, you know, you're sitting there and, and uh, getting all worked up, keeping it to yourself, it's all it's all pent up. It stays with you. But it, so I, I felt like by talking to my teammates and joking around and just trying to be as normal as possible, it helped kind of fend off those nerves. And um, if that made me somewhat normal, then good. I mean, I feel like I had – good relationships with most of my teammates. And, uh, but like I said, I mean, 
I think we all have regrets. I mean, there's probably times when I was a little bit uh, unpleasant to be around just because of maybe, uh, you know, lack of good play. Well, it, it, that cuts the like internal tension for, for you. That maybe that's something that you use, but um, the pressure of the position um, and then the pressure of being a number one, you know, a first round draft pick 22nd overall in the 1995 draft. It was the first time the Flyers ever used a first round pick uh, on a goaltender. And you look at it and maybe to you and me, especially, and the goal is it makes no sense because we go, well, it's the most important position in sports. Why isn't it drafted in the first round more? Well, it's hard to prognosticate what guys will be, I guess. Um, or the GM doesn't want to draft a goalie because especially back in your day, it was, well, they're not going to be here for five years and I'm not going to be here. So I can't waste the first yeah. round pick. Um, but the tension of the, of the position, um, the pressure of the position as the last line of defense, uh, was that was something that, that drew you to the position? Uh, I think when I'm a little kid, probably, you know, that's, wasn't the main thing. I think just I, when I to getting to being a goaltender, it was, it was the goalie gear for me. Like, I just, I love the pads. I love the setup of guys. And back then, you know, when I was a kid, it was, you know, you had the brown pads, the brown colored pads, and then, uh, colored pads started to come on. So that really drew me to the position. But once you start playing, you recognize how important the position is as a young kid. Like, you know, there is no shift changes. You're the only guy out there. You really can have an impact on the game. So I think you, over time, you start to enjoy the fact that you're the last line of defense, that you're a guy that can have a big impact on the game. Um, and that was fun to me. Uh, I'm sure it would have been fun to score goals. I'm sure all that would have been great. But once I started playing, again, the, the, the position itself, the, the gear drew me in. And then once you started to play and you see, wow, I can actually stay out here the whole game and, and be a big part of the game, I think that's, uh, that's what drew me to being a goaltender. You don't think so far down the road that when you're playing professionally that there's going to be all this pressure and all, you know, all this ex all these expectations. Uh, as a kid, you don't think about that. But that's something that, you know, if you're going to be a goalie, uh, you got to keep that in mind uh, down the road that, you know, there is a lot of baggage that comes with it. Yeah. And your parents know uh, as you're playing because they can't stand with the regular parents because the right. regular parents complain when the goalie gives up a, you know, one that they perceive to be a cookie. Right. <laughs> and right. You can't stand there. Goalie dad has to go stand off in the corner. Yeah. Uh, was your yeah. dad like I that? Think, uh, I think my dad was, uh, he was fine. He, he had a really good demeanor and I wish I, he, you know, he passed away a couple of years ago and I wish I had maybe some of his, uh, his demeanor when it came to being a hockey dad, I, he was terrific. I never saw him get mad in the stands. I never saw him, um, you know, criticize me or I, you know, but I never really was looking up there to be honest with you. I think I was so focused on playing, but even when we got in the car, he was so positive and always tried to spin it in a way that, you know, you could, you know, not, not to deflect blame from myself, but just, you know, look at the big picture and realize that there's, you know, four or five plays that took place before it ever got to me. And yeah, could I have done something differently? Sure. But, you know, realize that, you know, you're, you're part of, uh, you're part of a group out there that's trying to keep the puck out of the net. I think that helped me as a young kid. Uh, I, I don't know that I uh, picked up those traits as a hockey dad myself. No, uh, unfortunately. No, I think I, I, I think at times I've probably uh, been a little hard on my son and, and maybe just, maybe it's that ultra competitive nature of myself that probably has uh not allowed me to kind of like look at the big picture at times. I feel like I can do it for other people's kids. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But uh, when it's your own kid, uh, I think you just become so 
locked in and focused and competitive and just wanting to, you know, drive for, for excellence that maybe at times you make a few mistakes along the way. And that's just me being honest. I mean, uh, but by no means am I perfect, but my dad, I thought had a great demeanor for it. And, uh, I, I think he was, I, I think, you know, he was just a, a guy that enjoyed being at the ring. And, I, and the one thing that I can take from him is that he really showed me what it's like to have passion for the game of hockey. He loved hockey and uh, that, that wore off on me. Um, oftentimes it, when your dad puts you in the sport, it kind of sets a trajectory for your life because it's, the game seems to shape so many people's, you know, their values or the, the way that, you know, they, they value teammates or um, it's got so many life lessons in it and your son's learning them now. And by the way, congratulations. I know he signed his letter of intent, which is awesome. And he's a yeah. forward, you know, he's mm-hmm. a skater. Um, mm-hmm. Is it almost like cool for you? Cause you know, you were tethered to the net tethered to the crease, but you get to see your son, you're li- you live the game through your kid's eyes a lot of times, but you get to see your son be, be a great player. So you can now, in a way, almost roam out of the crease. Yeah, it's nice. And I think uh, early on when he was a young kid, I think most young kids want to be goalies, right? For the same reasons I explained why. I think the gear and the masks now, I think guys really fall in love with that stuff as a young kid. But I, you know, I kind of discouraged him as a, as a youngster. And I think my wife was a driving force behind that because she didn't want to have to live through it again. Um but, uh, you know, he, uh, he's done a nice job. I mean, he's really forged his own identity. He's, a you know, a strong kid who, uh, he's got a tremendous work ethic. Uh, he really is committed to the game. I'm super proud of him in that regard. I mean, uh, his off ice habits with training and stuff like that and, and being dialed in are so far superior to what I, what I was at his age. And he's taking advantage of you know, the technology and taking advantage of the, the data and the science that's involved and really is bought into it. So I, for me, yeah, it's a, it's a joy to watch him play and it, it, to know that every three shifts, you can kind of like check out for a little bit. You don't have to be locked and loaded. You know, you, yeah. when he gets off the ice, he can kind of breathe for a little bit and uh, uh, feel like, you know, you can be normal. Whereas if, you know, if you're a goalie parent, I mean, you, you know, puck turns over, you know, you're on edge for, for a 60 minute hockey game. So yeah. Um, it's great to see him playing and uh, you know, it's been a crazy year with the pandemic and all, and they're trying to make the best of it. It's like a, trying to catch a moving target. You know, there's games yeah. that get postponed and all that, but it's uh, he's making, making the best of a, a tough situation. Yeah, and, and you're, and the good thing too, is with him playing with the NTDP with them streaming games, mom and dad can watch from home and yeah. all that kind of stuff, which is awesome. Now, it's great. now, as a guy who played in the NHL was a first round draft pick, and you have a son now playing a lot of dads or people listen to this podcast and they have kids that play and some, a lot of kids that play listen to the podcast as well to gain little nuggets on, on, you know, how to chart that path to, to play the highest level hockey that they're capable of. So in your experience, both as a player now as a broadcaster and with your kids, um, you know, what are the, what are the key habits and, you know, things younger players can do, is it the off ice training like you just mentioned about Tyler? Is it taking advantage of technology, um, practice habits? What what is it that you know your best advice to for players to get the most out of what their skill set can be? Uh, that's a good question. I think uh, early on, you know, when you're talking about like eight, nine, ten year olds, uh, I think it's so important for parents to diversify and to and I know you read it in USA. Uh, publication, USA Hockey publications and stuff like that. But I still, I just really think it's important for kids to play 
uh, a variety of sports. And I think what I find is that too many kids at eight, seven, eight, nine, ten years old are locked in playing travel hockey and playing, you know, 340 days a year, uh, going to tournaments all over the place. I mean, I know they're not doing it now because of the pandemic, but um, that, that's what I find at a young age. And I, and, and, and I think that love for the game and that pattern, you hear parents say, oh, but my kid loves it. He can't, I can't keep him off the ice. And I understand that. Kids you can burn him out, though. Yeah. Kids fall in love with something, and I, I understand that. But I, you know, in my situation, I played multiple sports as a kid, and uh, I had my son play uh, baseball in the spring and summer, and he did that until he got to, to Babe Ruth, and he broke a collarbone playing hockey, and I think the it hurt to throw, and that's when he started to taper off on the baseball. But um, I, I think he it, when he came back to hockey, he enjoyed it. And, 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 and truthfully, I think that uh, – when you do that, it, you know, it doesn't, you know, people fall in love with that their kid is a good player at seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old. And sometimes those kids end up being the better player at 17 years old, but oftentimes it doesn't necessarily translate. And I think there ends up being a, a wall that they hit as they get older. So I think, you know, you kind of, you introduce them to the game, you play seasonally. Um, certainly you can work at it. You know, if your kid loves to, you know, watch YouTube videos, I would encourage that. I think you can learn by watching video. That's the technology that, that you have. Maybe you have a shooting pad, uh, in the driveway and the kid can go out there and shoot pucks. No, nothing to say you can't shoot pucks in the spring and summer. I'm just saying, stay off the ice and go to tournaments and stuff like that. You can always be working on your game, uh, year round. And then as you get older, once you get, you know, you know, hitting puberty and you get to, you know, ages like 13, 14, 15 years old. Now I think it's the time to start dialing it up a notch or two and start to, you know, focus on the off ice training and start to focus on maybe working on your skating and, and a little bit more and, and devoting a little bit more time to it. You know what I mean? I think yep. you know, people want to get to that point. They rush to get to that point at a young age. And then, you know, the kid, you know, doesn't grow or he ends up not, not, not having the same the kids pass him by. And now there's frustration and then there's, they hit the wall and I don't know. I mean, everybody's different and everybody will, will, will spin it the way they need to spin it for, for how it works for their family. But I just felt like I played multiple sports. My son played multiple sports. I knew there was a time when there was going to be a day where he had to crank it up. He did do, he did do that. And now I've kind of like, let him, I've let him go at 17 years old. I let him go at, at 15, 16 years old, I sent him away to, to play at Avon Old Farms and, and put him in the hands of somebody else and let him fall down and let him get up and let him make mistakes. And I think that it's it, it worked out pretty well for him. I'm not saying he's far from perfect, but I mean, as far as in today's world, I think that's that's the best he can do. Yeah. 10 year old kids, they fall in love with ice cream, too, but you can't give it to them every day. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. and, and I remember uh, reading an interview back years ago from Wayne Gretzky saying when hockey season was over in the beginning of March, he put his hockey bag away and he broke it out in September and he played baseball all summer, the transferable right. skills from other sports too, um, allow that. Yeah, but, 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 but in saying that Jason, I, you know, I know times change and people evolve yeah. and people say, yeah, you know, it's not 1979 anymore. And, and you're right. It isn't. I'm, I'm mm. not suggesting that you put your gear away and never touch it. Yeah. You know what I mean, but what I'm saying is like, I mean, you don't need to be on the ice four or five days a week for 340 days a year either. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can skate in the summer and the spring, you know, maybe once or twice a week, you know, but I'm just saying, go out and play another sport, play yeah. lacrosse, play baseball. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, do play soccer or whatever, indoor soccer or whatever it is, or tennis or something that's going to, 
help you with your athleticism. I think it'll only help you down the road. I'm not saying to do that until you're 20 years old. I'm saying that once you get to 14, 15 years old, now you can put those other sports aside and start to crank up the off-ice training, crank up the on-ice uh, intensity and all that stuff. Yeah, and, and that's when you figure out, too, if you want to make that commitment to drive in that direction with that sport, right. you pick your sport, if you will. Um, Boosh, uh, a first-round pick um, in the 95 draft, how did the process go for you? How much did you talk to the Flyers uh, prior to that draft? Did you know you were going – this was a distinct possibility at number 22 overall and that you would be taken as the first first-round goalie selected by this organization? To be honest with you, uh, I don't think I had any communication with the Flyers whatsoever. Really? Uh, wow. Yeah, uh, thinking back on it. Um, and it was a different time than now where I think now the vetting process is so intense and there's so much – background information on players and you know it's crazy now but um no I don't recall talking to the Flyers at all uh I didn't talk to very many teams I mean a few uh just you know get to meet them after a game uh that was about it nothing extensive um I thought I was rated early second round uh throughout that year my draft year and uh, there were 26 teams back then in the league so uh, I'd heard that Detroit was interested. I think they were picking 26. Um, I had a, I had maybe a handful of uh, interviews uh, when I got to Edmonton at the draft with some teams, but uh, didn't walk out of any of the interviews feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm for sure going to get picked by them. I don't think I was interviewed by Philadelphia. I think I would have remembered that. And that's why when I got picked at 22, I was, I was a little shocked. You know, mm -hmm. I, I didn't, I didn't really, I was waiting for 26. And I kind of got a tip because my my buddy that I grew up with, uh, Brian Berard, went first overall, and he was all done with it. He was all done with his photos and all the meetings that he has to do and the media availability. So he was back on the floor by the Ottawa table, and he found me in the stands, and he came running to the railing. He says he he, he saw on the screen that I was next. So because he could see on the computer, I guess it shows you know what pick is you know they're going to announce. So. Uh, I was, I, I got all nervous and then I heard my name and the whole thing, you know, I blacked out. I didn't even know what the heck happened after that, but it was a, yeah. So yeah, not a lot of communication with Philadelphia. Um, certainly, you know, had a good year, my draft year playing junior in the Western hockey league. And um, you know, we went to the league semifinals, lost to the Memorial cup champion Kamloops Blazers in six. So I think I did a good job as far as what I could control. Now it's just a matter of that draft day and, and seeing where you fall and um you know, it's funny, you don't think back then, you know, the team that you get drafted by is going to set, you know, the next 20, 25 years of your life in motion. And it's done that. I mean, I, I live in the Philadelphia area now. I'm, I was in Philadelphia several times in my career. Uh, my kids grew up here. They they certainly feel like they 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 are Philadelphians, even though we live in South Jersey. I guess it all counts. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird, you know, that that moment in time, um, I think it was July 8th, 95, you know, set everything in motion it, it charts the whole course it's crazy um so, so you get drafted by the flyers how does that process play out for you after uh you know you're the first first round goalie they've ever selected um who were the goalies at the time and and what was kind of the timeline and how was that articulated to you for you for you to get to the nhl yeah there wasn't a ton of communication uh, from the organization to myself uh <laughs> you get picked you get your hat you get your t-shirt your bag and they tell you you're going to come to a, you know, a summer orientation camp. You come in a couple of weeks later, they train you. 
very, very difficult stuff. You know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. And you stay in the hotel at the Hampton Inn there. Uh, in Voorhees, you eat at Olive Garden uh, every day. <laughs> And you get to Red know sticks the other and salad. Oh yeah. And you get to know, you get to know your other, uh, your other, you know, drafted prospects, you know, some are from 94 and 93 and you know what I mean? And then, you know, the 95 class and you kind of, you do that. And, uh, I didn't go to main camp that year. Uh, they only took me to rookie camp and I got sent back to junior and that was, that was disappointing. I mean, you knew there were other guys that were drafted, uh, Guys like, I think, you know, Marty Baron, who was drafted in Buffalo, and John Sebastian Jaguar and Mark Denis, they were all first-round pick goaltenders uh, from my draft class. And they were all at main camps. And Philly, you know, just they wanted to take it slow and and, uh, and, and decided to send me back to junior after rookie camp. So that was, you know, that was a little disappointing. But, um, you know, they had Hextall uh, and Garth Snow uh, were the goalies, I believe, that first year when I was here. Mm-hmm or maybe Roussel, I can't recall, but I know uh, Hexy was here for sure. And uh, just, you know, very little contact with the NHL guys. I mean, you just kind of come in, you're just, you're intimidated by everybody. You can't believe it. You almost want to call, you know, guys like, like Hexy, you want to call him Mr. Hextall because like, you, you know, you, you look up to them so much. And yeah. Um, yeah. So I went back to junior and, and, and had a good, good year in junior uh, that year. And, um, and then the next year I came in and that's when I finally went to main camp the year after and, and started to chip away at, you know, getting comfortable. And you start with like number 79 and you work your way down. And the minute I, and then one day I got to camp and I had number 33 and I thought, oh my God, this is a, I might have a real chance this year to make the team. When um, you get into the main camp, um, do you immediately notice, okay, this is different. Uh, you know, I'm playing in the Western and they're, they're great age, uh, you know, your, your peer players and the best players in North America, but now you're in with, you know, the big boys, the adults, the best players in the world. Uh, was there anything in particular, any moment where, you know, you're in your flyers, you know, the main camp and you go, okay, this is different. Um, yeah, not one particular moment, but just like being around guys that you grew up, you know, watching and idolizing, uh, to me, some that, skilled guys on that team. <laughs> I mean, you got Eric Lindros, a guy that yeah. was, you know, you could argue was, you know, one of the faces of the NHL. You had, you know, Gretzky, Lemieux, Lindros at that time. I mean, he was larger than life. Uh, when you think about it, even though he's, he's not that much older than, than me. I mean, he was a guy that was a prodigy from a young age. So, just being around them and seeing guys like the way Rod Brindamore worked in the gym. I mean, I'd never seen a human being, uh, you know, work like that. Uh, guys in junior, I mean, they're kind of in shape, you know, they're, they're, they're young kids, right. They're 16, 17, 18 years old. I mean, this was a man that was, you know, jacked and, you know, intensity. And so I think when you get around these guys that are your idols and, and that you look up to, um you know it's surreal right I mean it's like you almost have to take time to get used to that and once you can kind of like understand that these are guys that they're going to be your 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 peers you know that once you get past that then you can get to the other side of it which is you know getting into the work ethic and so there's such a, a steep learning curve for a young for a young guy especially back then I think that that learning curve is getting less and less now because of the way the game is set up uh, in a salary cap era that these kids have to get in there and, and the way they train there, these kids train at, at a much younger age where we were kind of like, when we got to these camps in the, in the summertime, this is our first introduction to how the, it's going to be. I think now these kids that are prospects, 
they're seeing how it's going to be at 15 years old, 14, 15 years old. So they're much more prepared um, to kind of chip away at that, that steep learning curve. Um, but yeah, it was, it was amazing. I mean, I, I just remember coming in and, and being around guys like Peter Svoboda. I mean, I was a Canadians fan growing up, right? So it was Peter Svoboda. I mean, oh my God, you know, number yeah. 25 for the Canadians and John McClare. I mean, like, I mean, what he did in 93 for the Canadians in overtime and Eric Desjardins. I mean, these guys were guys that I like idolized. I mean, they yeah. were, you know, so it was, it was a big eye opener for me. And, um, you know, that's, I think where you realize, man, this is, this is real. And, and you just learn to adjust and, Fortunately, I was able to chip away at the process and eventually get there in 99. Just about every young player and young goaltender has somebody along the way early, um, you know, in their path when they get to drafted or, you know, get with the club or sign or whatever it is and kind of help them along the way. Who, who helped you along the way in your early days with the Flyers? Who kind of taught you some of those lessons and took you under the wing a bit? Well, I, starting with just in pro in general, uh, my first, you know, goaltender partner was Neil Little um, with the Phantoms and he was perfect. Uh, he's a, a, a tremendous guy, a tremendous friend. We're friends to this day. Um, we played golf the other day, uh, a guy that I really enjoyed being around and he was a great person to be around. His demeanor was terrific, a great team guy. Uh, selfless person and he kind of like was my introduction into pro hockey he was intense when it was time to be intense but when it was time to kind of let your hair down and enjoy yourself he did that as well and anybody who's played with him would know that um, but just uh, you know I think he was perfect you know there was no competition there between us it was he was older than me by five years I looked up to him uh, I wanted to learn from him and so he helped me a lot and then eventually when I got to the National Hockey League, uh, it, it was John Van Biesburg. I mean, he was my first goaltender partner and, um, you know, watching him prepare day in and day out and how he went about his business. Uh, he was very, very serious, uh, very locked and loaded uh, at all times for the most part. Uh, but he, he was great. And when that whole situation played out uh, in the springtime where they ended up going with me in the playoffs. He handled it like a real classy professional would and uh, didn't get in the way and really taught me a lot about, you know, you know what it means to be a pro. And, and, and I thank him for it. I, I only wish, and I think I've said this to you before that, you know, my only wish is that he would have been my goalie partner for the next two, two years after that. I think I needed him that much. Once he was gone and there was that competition once again, I wasn't ready for it. And I think it set my career back. And I, you know, I understand why the Flyers did it. Um, but for me personally, uh, selfishly, I needed John Van Biesburg to be my partner for uh, a variety of reasons, you know, mentally, uh, physically, to share the workload, all of that stuff and to lean on him. And I, I didn't have him in years two and three in Philadelphia. It's me. I was watching during the pause, um, you know, when they're showing all the old games, the 96 final, I think it was with Florida and watching him and just how undersized he was, but insanely yeah. athletic. Like he was flying all over the place. He almost looked like a water bug making saves at mm -hmm. times with, the, with that bizarre mask that he had, and which I love, by the way. Um, but, you know, when you get into the league and, and you're playing and, and you have the partner, you just said it that, you know, with Litz that you guys had this, you know, it, it wasn't really a competition, but that's hard to do. Because there's only one crease. And mm -hmm. while you want to have team success because, you know, because you you're a good teammate, how difficult was it at that level? Because you're playing for a career. You're not playing just to be a kid and you want the crease. 
you're playing for your livelihood. How hard is it sometimes to compartmentalize that and say, you know, hey, I do want my partner to play good, but knowing that if he does, I don't get back in the net for a period of time, or I may only get a game once every eight games and staying ready as, as a goaltender in that position, I think is one of the most difficult things in sports to maintain an edge and be able to jump in a game after not playing for seven or eight and just practicing. So how, how did you kind of deal with that? Like, I want this guy to have success, but I also want to play and I need opportunity. Yeah. That's one of the, one of the toughest things. That's part of the learning curve. And in junior, uh, you know, you're the, I was a starting goaltender and I played almost every game, but I was healthy. Um, and there was never a thought that the other guy would take my spot if I had a bad game. Like I never thought about it in junior ever, you know, so now you get to the national, you know, now you get to the American hockey league and there's a guy that's, you know, been in the minors for a long time. Right. And guys love him, And, you know, you're supposed to be this prospect and you want to play. Yeah. So you gotta, you gotta figure that out, you know, and you gotta, dial it back a little bit there was there were days my competitive nature wanted to be where I wanted that net every day and I needed to learn how to how to hide that you know and not make it so obvious that I that's what I was searching for and don't get me wrong Neil if you if you press him he would tell you he was searching for the same thing you know oh, yeah. he wanted the net he just knew how to play the game within the game he knew how to you know how to make sure that he was a good teammate, that his teammates love. I think it's the most important thing for a goal. One of the most important things is to make sure that you have, or that your teammates have your back, that they, that they find a way to, to really have an affection for you. If they, if they like you, if they love you, they will do anything for you. And no goaltender, there's maybe a handful of guys that maybe played in the history of the NHL that could probably do it on their own as a goaltender, you know? And they're really special people, but they're not everywhere. And they don't come around every day. For a lot, you know, you know, a large majority of us, it depends on the system you play uh, in back of, uh, the teammates that you have, you know what I mean? It's, you know, you're a victim of, of the circumstance that you're in. So if you can make that circumstance as good as possible, that's what's most important. I think that's the, the thing that you have to learn. And I, and I struggled with it at the start, you know what I mean? And I didn't have a very good year, my rookie year in the American Hockey League. I I, I mean, I, I was comparing myself to Mark Denis, to Marty Baron. I mean, I wanted to get to the NHL now. I wanted it now, right? I wanted to, I put all this pressure on myself. I needed to be great every day. And the reality is you're not going to be great every day. You're going to have bad days, bad weeks. And uh, all of that I needed to learn. And that's why I say like having a partner like Litz helped me to realize that you can't have your foot on the gas every single day and expect it to be okay. There's days where you got to pull off. There's days where you got to kind of be a chameleon and figure out what you're going to be today because uh, it's a long year and that's all part of life and all part of uh, trying to be a goaltender at a pro level. It's not an easy thing. It's like a, a race car driver. You can't wear your tires out on two laps. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You got to save your tires a little bit. Right. Uh, let's talk about the, the run to the conference final uh, eventually against the devils. Um, what it was it was crazy that playoff I, I remember watching it all and living it all and and you went through it uh what was it like for your group as you charged your way to that conference final and got up three games to one and, and where do you think maybe the, the three games to one I know there was a lot of dramatics off ice and a lot of distraction um but but it, losing that conference final up three games to one just how devastating how do you kind of look back on that now 
Yeah, it's disappointing, and you wonder, you know, what could have been, right? You can't change, you can't change the past. And uh, but I, I, there's a lot of times when I look back on it and I say, uh, what would have happened in my career had I won a Stanley Cup in my rookie season? You know, uh, I'm proud. I'm proud of my career. I'm proud of where it took me and and what happened and uh, the lumps that I took and the way I bounced back at times. But you do, you just wonder. I mean geez, if I, if I won a Stanley Cup my rookie year, you know, what would have been? Um, so it's disappointing, you know, when you think about that. But the reality is, you know, that was a heck of a run that we were on. You know, we, we, we got through Buffalo pretty easily. Uh, Pittsburgh, we were down 2 nothing in that series, battled back, uh, had, you know, the eight-period game to tie the series 2-2, showed a lot of resilience in that series, all without Eric Lindros and the, the drama that you're talking about, you know, where, where Eric was coming back in that Jersey series. I mean, we got up three, one in that series without, without Lindros. And then all the talk about, you know, Eric coming back and, you know, uh, some wanted it on the team, some didn't. And truthfully, I was at 23, I think I was 24 at that time. I think I turned 24 during that year. I was a 24 year old kid that just, I didn't, I didn't think anything about it. I was like, if Big E wants to play, Biggie plays. I mean, he's, a, you know, one of the best players in the league. I mean, what are we talking about here? I mean, we got no, no disrespect to Peter White and Mark Gregg who are playing in the lineup in place of uh, Big E. But like, I mean, if we can bring, you know, 88 in and, and you know, scratch Gregor or Whitey, uh, I think that's going to help us. Right. Well, I mean, I think there was more at play than I knew. I was just a, you know, a, a naive rookie and had no idea, but it, I think it kind of, it, it, it took away our, our, our mojo a little bit. You know, I think it, 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 the continuity that we had built up throughout that playoffs, the playing for one another, for whatever reason, it just took a little edge off of us and we slipped a tad and, we, you know, you lose game five and, okay, we're going to get it back, but then, then you lose game six and now momentum's out of your hands. And now it's a matter of like, you know, it's anybody's ball game. And Marty Brodeur, truthfully, when we were up three, one, he gave up a couple of soft, soft goals in those games uh, that helped us get up three, one. And he started to dial it in and he, he got locked and loaded. And when momentum goes away and then that big hit in game seven by Scott Stevens, I mean, it sucked the life out of the building. And although it was a one, one game late in the game, I just feel like it was, you know, looking back on it. I mean, so many things at play that, you know, tipped us to the, the scale in Jersey's favor uh, to win that series. And you got to give credit to them, but yeah, had we won that series, I, I, I believe we would have won the Stanley Cup. I feel like we were a team of destiny. Um, and I guess we'll just never know until, you know, now I look back on it. It, it was a nice deep run and uh, probably a most, I would say the most memorable moment of my Flyers career, even though we went to the Stanley Cup finals in Chicago, I still feel like that rookie year was magical for me. What a way to come in too, by the way. So, so Bush, you end up uh, leaving Philadelphia after a few years. You're a first round draft pick here. You leave, you, you go to uh, Phoenix at the time. It was, it wasn't Arizona. Then it was called Phoenix. Um, what was that moment when you're first, now, now you're moving on from your, you know, the team that drafted you for the first time. I and mean, that's the wake up call. Maybe that it's a business, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I kind of, you know, I, I made a mistake along the way there. Um, we had lost to Ottawa in the playoffs in one Oh two. I think we lost in five and I was, uh, I was hypercritical of Bill Barber um, in a post uh, season scrum. Um, and I just was speaking truth, you know, you know, truthfully and, and, you know, and, and probably emotionally to be honest with you. And um 
and it was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. And that's a, that's a learning moment that I figured out in my career that, you know, sometimes you gotta, you know, you gotta keep your emotions to yourself. And, uh, and for that, I think that's what facilitated the trade to Phoenix. I think at that point, you know, that sealed my deal in Philadelphia. Um, and I, and you know, that's a learning experience. I, I regret doing that. Um, and I believe I've told Billy that, uh, that, that, you know, I handled it. I handled that situation poorly, but yeah, I got traded to Phoenix and I can tell you, this is the wake up call that I got. I went to a place, which is a great place to live. Don't get me wrong. It's sunshine and there's palm trees and, uh, it hardly ever rains. But when I got there, I realized this wasn't a sports town. Mm-hmm. This wasn't a, a place that loves its hockey. And there were empty seats in the building. And felt like the, Siberia, right? <laughs> the energy that was that was always present in Philadelphia was always lacking in Phoenix. And I realized quickly we didn't have the same team that we had in Philadelphia. We weren't a contending team. We weren't a top four team. And uh, I was exposed. I was exposed uh, right from the hop. And um, it was, a, that, that was my introduction that this game is a business and, you know, the learning experience. I think I, you know, like I said, I was the one that made the mistake probably, you know, forcing Clarky's hand to, to maybe do Maybe not. I don't know. I'm just saying that I wish I would have handled that situation differently. And now I was in a, in a place in Phoenix, although a great place to live. It wasn't Philadelphia. And I, I desperately wish I could go back in time and snap my fingers and be back in Philadelphia because we had a team that was a legit contender every year. We had a passionate fan base, and I realized just how much I missed being uh, in Philadelphia when I went to Phoenix, although I, I did like the sunshine. But from a professional hockey standpoint, um, it was not the same as Philadelphia. Uh, Boosh, you had a couple other stops after Phoenix. Um, you, you went to Calgary. You played in Canada. What's the difference like playing in Canada? You weren't there long, but uh, yeah. to, to play for a Canadian team as opposed to a, a U.S. team. Yeah, it's, uh, it's different, but it's, you know, in a lot of ways, it's similar to Philadelphia. I think, you know, Philly has its, um, its seasons, right? You know, and when, when you start in the fall, it's, it's, it's all about football, and understandably so. Yeah. Uh, but once football's done and you get to, you know, February 1, you know, I think the people's attention shifts and, you know, goes to the Flyers and Sixers. I mean, you got people that are both fans of both, but you know, that's where they start to get ramped up and you get the afternoon games and you start to get that feeling that, you know, every game is important in Philadelphia. Um, you know, and, and then when you, you know, but when you go to a place like Calgary in Canada, you feel that every single day, it is the major talk of town every single day. I was only there from the uh, Olympic break to the, uh, to the playoffs. So it was only a short period of time. So we had made some trade deadline moves. They'd gone to the Stanley cup final where they lost to Tampa in oh, it was at 04, I believe. Yep. Uh, yep. So they, they were getting left out. Yeah. Yeah. So we had a lockout and then we're coming out of the lockout and, and this is where we were with, um, with a playoff run. So in Calgary, they were, they were fresh off this playoff run uh, that they wanted to, to see uh, end differently. So there was a lot of, a lot of hype. It was great. I mean, uh, you know, just for me, it was a short stay. Kipper was a starting goaltender. And for me, when when that deal ended, it just wasn't the right spot for me. And it didn't work out for me to go back to Calgary because I think I wanted to have an opportunity to play. And with Kipper, you're just not going to have that. But playing in Calgary, I thought was a, a great spot, great building, great city. Um, just unfortunate that we lost in the first round that year. 
Yeah, you can always head down to Banff and check that out. One of the great. I didn't. I, I didn't do that. I wasn't there long enough. I was only there like three months. Yeah, I mean, the wife want to get to Banff at some point. It looks just insane. Um, how sick was Kipper? Mika Kipper Un- Unbelievable. Uh, Ridiculous, right? Yeah, I mean, he he was uh, he was the best that I played with, mm-hmm. and you know, I got the chance to play with Cujo and Phoenix and. You know, Cujo was kind of on the back end of his career there, but Kipper was, I mean, sensational. I mean, this guy was, he didn't even sweat. Like, it was incredible. He didn't say a word in the locker room. He just sat in his stall. You would really? think, I, yeah, this guy looked like, he looked like, I don't know. He, he looked, he did, he looked the furthest thing from a professional athlete. Um, and then when it came time to play, he was unreal. I mean, he would wait, you know, he'd put on his upper gear. He never said a word. He just sat there and then he'd go out there and he was unbelievable. His flexibility, his reads, his glove was under underrated. I mean, he caught pucks across his body to kill plays, especially yeah. on like five on threes, like one timers from like, you know, a slot. And he was able to like snag it, you know, and he just, <laughs> He was incredible. Uh, and you talk about an easygoing guy. This guy, I don't, like I said, I don't even think he, he would sweat. I mean, he, you didn't get the sense that he was nervous about anything. If he kept it all to himself and he was nervous, he fooled me. I wouldn't want to play poker against him because uh, he was sensational. And he was a guy that I, I played against in, in World Juniors. He was, uh, he was a late 76 and I was a 77. So I think we were the same draft year. And uh, he ended up going like fifth round. And it just goes to show you that those guys weren't scouted um, as vigorously as we were here in North America because he was a diamond in the rough. And I mean, his athleticism was so far superior to mine. It was not even, not even close. I mean, this guy could do a split on command. Uh, he was just, yeah, he was durable. He was, yeah. he was amazing. Amazing. Yeah. One of the tremendous goaltenders for sure. Maybe a lot of people here maybe didn't get to see him as much because he played in Calgary for so long. But- yeah, you're right. Um, you just brought, you brought up that he would just sit there in his uppers. I got to ask you about the five overtime game, because w- what are you as a goalie doing in between all these overtimes? You get the one, you get the two, you're trying to stay mentally sharp. I mean, how much gear are you dropping in, in between these overtimes? Are, are you getting the skates off at any point? Are you just taking off your uppers, changing your base layer? Uh, what are you eating, <laughs> you know, during a five overtime game like that? And I think you've said this before. I think you're, you are a sweater. You drank a lot during games. Yeah. What was that like to in between all those overtimes uh, as you go on and on and on into the night, two 30 in the morning. Yeah. I always took my uppers, uh, my chest protector off, changed my undershirt. Uh, I tried to, you know, cool off that way because I did sweat a lot. Um, Eating wise. I had, we had power gels back then. I don't even know what the guys are eating these days. Probably not power gels. I'm sure there's something that's, you know, better for them now. (laughs) Uh, but we went through those. Uh, I mean, I wasn't truthfully, I wasn't really hungry. I was more thirsty than anything, but you couldn't put enough fluid in you for the sweat that you had. And it wasn't like the game was physically taxing. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like it was back and forth. As a matter of fact, I've gone back and watched that game and I find the game quite boring and, you know, the, the quality of hockey was quite poor. You know what it I kept mean? dropping. Like, <laughs> oh, it, was, it was terrible. I yeah. mean, uh, but I mean, you got to think about the pressure of the moment. Next goal wins. It's a three-one series or two-two. So it's the mental anxiety, you know what I mean, that is causing all of the stress and all of the sweating and you know what I mean and all of the tension. Um, so that that was the hard part. Um, but yeah, that I never took my skates off just because you want to conserve energy. I mean, like 
just taking off your pads or, and putting yeah. on your pads again, you only have 16 minutes and not even that because you got to head out there before the two minute mark. So you really only have about seven minutes to kind of just like chill out before you got to get dressed again. So you don't want to expend energy doing that. It's all about just trying to save as much energy as possible and refocus and get rehydrated and try and cool off as best you can. Boy, what did the dogs feel like when you finally got the skates off that night? Oh, they'd be yeah, swollen, was, man. <laughs> oh man, it was crazy. I remember taking my skate and pouring it and, oh. and and sweat pouring out of it like it was a like a water bottle. Incredible. <laughs> Unbelievable. Incredible. Yeah. Um, you end up in uh, Chicago. You played San Jose as well. Um, what was it like to put that San Jose jersey on? Because of the shark and the, I mean, it's a, such a killer jersey. What was it like playing yeah. in San Jose? Uh, I wish they would go. I don't know what they're doing for their reverse retros, but I like the original Sharks jersey, the teal. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know why they don't wear those. I mean, to me, that's the the sickest jersey going. But whatever. Um, I loved San Jose. Uh, I loved it there. I mean, the only negative to San Jose is that it's so darn expensive that when you're playing on a league minimum, uh, it's not going for, you're not saving much. Um, but I loved it there. The weather was great. The fan base, see, now this is the difference between like Phoenix and San Jose. And I don't mean to dump on Phoenix by, by any stretch. I mean, I loved being there. And it was, you know, I had, you know, great memories, but the fan base in San Jose was passionate. It was a packed house in that building. Anybody Thank will tell you. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's steep and the fans are kind of on top of you and it feels like an old school building, uh, even though it was a, a bit newer. I just I just love it. And we had unbelievable we had an unbelievable team there. The two the two I wasn't there two full years, but the two teams that I was on, you know, we were we were contenders for the cup and there were high expectations that we didn't end up meeting, but uh I loved San Jose, loved everything about it. The like I said, it's a great place to to live weather wise. The passion that was there we had a great team great group of guys um yeah i i i really enjoyed the year and a half i was there what was nabokov there when you were there yeah yeah i was with nabby what, what was that crazy russian like he's coaching a lot of russian goalies now and, and there's an invasion yeah. of russian goalies uh and you know you see from vasileski to Bobrovsky and you know the number one draft pick there's a lot of young goalies sorokin coming over and Samson off and Shosturkin. So what was Nabokov like? I imagine he, he's a bit crazy. Good guy. Uh, he was, he was serious about it. Uh, he was focused. He was, um, he worked hard. Like um, that's the one thing that I, I was, you know, not surprised, but you don't know guys, you know, when you play against them, you don't know their work ethic and practice and what they do extra. And Nabby, Nabby had a strong, strong work ethic and it was no surprise how he was able to uh, fend off guys like Vesa Toskala and, and Mika Kiprasov. I mean, you think about it, they got rid of those guys and kept Nabby. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that's, that's heavy competition for a goaltender. He was mentally strong, um, but he, he, you know, was, he was an undersized guy that he wasn't very big, but he was, he was, um, he was very athletic, very, he was flexible. Um, so yeah, I mean, he, and he had a great work ethic, but I got along great with him. I knew my role going there, right? Like I was, I was there to be given some time off. And I think he, he wanted to play, but he was not threatened by me whatsoever. He knew that he was the number one guy and he really enjoyed, I think when it was time for him to have a night off mentally, he knew that he could have the night off and not have to be tapped on the shoulder to come in to, to, you know, clean up that, that mess. If I didn't do the job, I think he trusted me that I could go out there and give him some time off 
and it, it was a good working relationship. Um, I, I mean, I wish I would have had another year or two there too. I think that would have been a great spot, but I, I eventually ended up coming back to Philadelphia there in 09, 10. Uh, but I would have been just as happy to stay in San Jose. I, I loved it that much. Um, so you do come back and it kind of comes full circle. Um, you come back to Philadelphia, as you mentioned in 09, 10. Um, what was that like for you to come back on? Did it almost kind of write that wrong boost? Because you talked about before you felt like you made a mistake in, in those postgame comments, um, which led to your, to your trade uh, initially. Um, to come back, what was that like? Was that almost like, okay, uh, this is now fixed? Yeah, it, it definitely. And I, and, and I came back before I went to San Jose, I signed a minor league deal with the Phantoms. Uh, I was coming off shoulder surgery and Paul Holmgren signed me to a minor league deal to play for the Phantoms for the first three quarters of the season before I signed in San Jose. So I was, I was renting Todd Fedorik's house in Mount Laurel. My kids were little, they were going to like, you know, pre-kindergarten and stuff. And my wife and I were so grateful to be back in the Philadelphia area because I think we realized having gone all these different places that we really missed Philadelphia, that we really, you know, our heart wanted to be back here. Uh, we had friends outside of hockey that we had missed. And, you know, you think the grass is greener elsewhere and it turns out it isn't. And I think it was a big growing up moment for us. And so I came back to Philadelphia to play in the minors. I, you know, they, you know, Craig Berube was our coach. He played the snot out of me. I played 42 games. I got my confidence back and then San Jose signs me. And uh, it was great while I was there, but to come back to Philadelphia uh, was awesome. You know, and it was like, like you said, it was like coming home again. It was a chance to right all the wrongs. And to me, it was, uh, it was everything that I, that I'd wanted. And, and, um, you know, it was a tough start at the beginning. John Stevens got fired, but eventually we started to turn around. It was a team that was on the rise again. You know, Chris Pronger came here and uh, there were expectations once again in Philadelphia and you could feel that energy. And it, although it was different than my rookie run, uh, it felt the same, the passion, the fans. It was everything that I'd missed before. I was so happy to be back. And um, I'm glad I'm glad that it worked out that I came back to Philadelphia at that time in my career because I think I was ready for it. I think I was appreciative and grateful for it. And uh, although we didn't win a Stanley cup, I think it was a, a pretty good run in those couple of years. And obviously 2010 and that run was crazy. Laviolette comes in and um, such an intense head coach and you played for intense coaches. You played for coaches with all kinds of different demeanors um, as a goalie. What was your preference for the head coach that you had the, the way he handled goalies? Cause some goalie coaches will insulate goalies. And, you know, I've heard guys that had to insulate, uh, you know, Tortorella from the goalies in a way, or he'll give it to you about a goal. And then the goalie coach was like, that one really wasn't on you. So basically listen to my evaluation, not his, but, yeah. um, you know, go coaches will come into the room. Sometimes say, you got to give us a freaking save there. You know what I mean? Even though the breakdown was all around you and your environment environment was uh, abysmal. Uh, and sometimes he just does it for effect, but what did you prefer from the head coach and how they handled it? I just, for me, I, I communicate with me. Uh, you know, don't, don't, don't ignore me. Don't act like I don't exist. You know, if you've got bad news for me, deliver the news, you know, don't, don't run away from it. I think just being honest with somebody and be approachable. Let me come in and talk to you. I'm not going to come in and talk to you every day, but if I, if I, you know, have an open door, I think that's what I wanted. And I realized that they had a lot on their plate. You know, they were worried about a lot of other things, not just a goaltender. And that's why you have a goalie coach, like you said, that you lean upon and that you talk to. That's the guy that you're talking to daily. That's the guy that you're dealing with in video. Um, and you, I mean, you gotta have some tough, you gotta have some thick skin too as a goaltender. And 
you know, there are times that you're sensitive, right? If a coach calls you out in front of the whole team and, you know, and, you know, choose you a new one. I mean, yeah, nobody likes to have that situation happen, right? We're all defensive and we all want to like protect ourselves and we all have egos and we, you know, we all want to be like, oh, I, you know, not my fault. And, you know, the guy's a jerk and stuff like that. But the reality is, you know, when you, when you pull back and you get an aerial view of the situation you, and you can take a deep breath, oftentimes you can realize that, uh, you know, the coach was probably right in certain situations and that, you, you know, you got to learn from those. So I just wanted a coach that, you know, that valued me uh, for, for what I was, uh, whatever it was, if it, whatever time in my career, if it was when I was younger and I thought I was a starter, you know, value me for that. If I was later on in my career as a number two or a one B um, and just talk to me, like, I, and I, I think that goes a long way. Communication's huge and, and forging a relationship, even it doesn't have to be like your best buddies, but just have enough of a relationship where, you know, you can approach one another and see where you're coming from. I think that that creates the best working uh, professional environment. Boosh, uh, I always found it a jealousy in bad losses from a goaltending perspective because a player can go in there and go, I played 16 minutes. Um, And if a player has a bad game, it's easy to hide. If a goalie has a bad game, it's, you know, every time you make a mistake, even if it's not your mistake, it looks like your mistake because a red light goes off and the crowd either boos or they cheer. And, you know, and, and there's a horn that goes off. Uh, and you walk back into the room. Sometimes you're just like, man, I didn't have it tonight. And when you don't have it, there's nothing you can do other than to say, well, you know, I didn't have it tonight, boys, no matter what you did, it didn't matter. Uh, And on the other hand, sometimes when they didn't have it, you get kind of scapegoated. That's a hard thing to deal with as well, isn't it? On people understanding that you're a product of your environment. Yeah. And uh, you know, that's, that's the hard part. And that's the part that you have to learn to deal with. uh, If you're going to be a goaltender that you, you know, um, I think the, the tough part is you make it about yourself uh, sometimes and your ego and all that stuff. And that's the worst part of being a goaltender that, you know, you let your ego get in the way and it can really hinder you from, from being great at times. But, you know, when I look back on it and I, and it was hard to do it at the time, but now that I look back, like if, if, if a family or a guy spent $500 at night, right. Or 700 bucks to come to a game to take his family, that's an expensive night for the everyday person, right? To come see a game. And they look forward to this game so badly. And, and they show up and I go in there and give up three goals in the first period, two of which were terrible goals, right? Now we're down three, nothing. And now the game ends up being a stinker. It's a six, one blowout. You know, I can understand why that guy's mad. Mm-hmm. You know, like I get it. Like he spent a lot of money, look forward to this one game that he was coming to this year. And the, and, and the damn goaltender stunk tonight he stunk right now so i get that but you know as a goaltender there's 82 games in a season and however many you play like you know you're not going to be on top of your game every night and and that's that's the that's the tough part mentally that you have to you got to shake off and but you know as far as like dealing with the fact that people are upset or the pressure of it all that that's that's why it's not for everybody and that's why the the great ones that you see uh, when they are great, you should celebrate it because it's not an easy position to play. Uh, and when I look back on it, uh, I can understand where people are coming from. I, tr- the only thing I can say to people about when I play goal is when I had a, a, a real bad night, trust me, when I say this, I wanted to be better. I wanted to be better for you as a fan. I wanted to be better for myself, for my teammates. You know, the intent was there, but 
some nights you, you just don't have it, whether it's because of a lack of talent or, you know, whatever it is, uh, it just, it happens, you know, and, and for any fan that's out there that maybe was upset and irate, I, I, I apologize. And I, I'm not going to issue a refund. I'm not <laughs> saying that of your money, but, uh, just know that, uh, I, I'm sorry that I didn't play better at times. And, and you didn't just park it when you walked off the ice. It wasn't like, ah, well, that game's over. They got screwed. That you wore it for a while too, like you, oh, you kind yeah, of irritate yeah, yeah. yeah, irritates you. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bush, when you're getting to the end of your career and the injuries are piling up, you had injuries in 2010. You get in, you're playing well against the Bruins. You go down. We know about it. When the body starts to fail and the mind is still going, I can still play this game because as you get older too, you learn your body more. You learn more about the games. You read plays differently. You feel like you have more institutional knowledge and instinct. Uh, but the body doesn't want to agree. How frustrating is that? Which ultimately ultimately leads you to the decision that uh, my pro career has got to end. Yeah, that's that's a hard part. And um, that's why you got to take care of yourself as a pro athlete. And I think the when you do it early on in your career, you know, you, you build equity in all of it and <clears throat> taking care of yourself. Uh, that goes a long way. I think some people can get away on just on talent and and maybe they don't work as hard in the off season, but eventually it'll catch up to you. Whereas if you do it right, you know, forever, I think you, you build enough equity that uh, when it gets to the latter end, you can tack on three, four more years because you've put that, that, that time and effort and uh, sacrifice early on in your career. Um, but yeah, I mean, I had some injuries, you know, some were, you know, unfortunate and some were, you know, my, my undoing, you know, I had the shoulder issue, um, I dislocated it uh, early on in my career in Columbus in a practice in a fit of rage. I tried to break a stick and dislocated my shoulder. Mm. Uh, that's a story for another time. But, you know, that set, you know, now a shoulder that was banged up. And then I did it again, uh, diving into a pool on Father's Day. Oh uh, yeah. And um, I had surgery during the lockout in 12, 13 when I was in Carolina. And that injury was the one that did me in. I just, because I couldn't train uh, during, during the lockout, I could only rehab. And at that point in my career, I really needed to maintain my fitness and I wasn't able to do it. And I found my recovery not to be there when I came back. And I ended up getting traded back to Philadelphia, went to the minors, but my shoulder was now I had my second shoulder surgery. It wasn't the same. And it was just a, it was a battle to just get the shoulder to feel good. You know what I mean? Never mind everything else that you have to worry about. You know, you just fall behind. And then that was, that was a tough, that was a tough part. And that's when, you know, okay, it looks like this is, this is going to, uh, this is going to be the end. Uh, and I was able to go to Switzerland and, you know, play for another two, three months there and make a few bucks. But um, the passion wasn't the same. And I think when you, when you can't recover and you can't play at that level that you've been accustomed to, or at least, have the fitness level that you're accustomed to having. I mean, that, it just makes it frustrating day in and day out. All right. Rapid fire. Two last questions for you. Your most memorable save in the national hockey. League. I think I know what it is, uh, but you know, we think everybody thinks they know what your most memorable save is. It's the Eliash one, but for you, yeah. is that your most memorable save? No, I think the most memorable save would be the save on Jokinen in the shootout to get us into the playoffs. I think that that had more meaning and the pressure of that save and you slowed it down. Like, it's like, you know, here, there's a shootout. This, the Eliash thing just happened, you know, yeah. it just was, you know, it sprung upon you, but no, the, to me, it's, it's the, uh, it's the Jokinen save just because of the, the enormity of it. 
That's a great one. Um, yeah, and you, the Eliash one, you're right. It's it's bang, bang. You go for the poke. You set yourself up to have to get into this desperation mode yeah. and, and make that insane save. Um, the most memorable goal you've ever given up. Is it the Ovechkin goal? Ooh, I've never really thought about that one. Uh, yeah, we don't, yeah. Goalies don't think about those. No, <laughs> I've tried to forget about all of them. <laughs> I mean, it's got to be. Yeah, that's the one. I mean, it, it, it might end up being the greatest goal ever scored in hockey history. Yeah. Uh, by maybe the greatest score we're ever going to see in hockey history. Um, yeah, I would say that that goal is probably the most memorable one. Yeah, I mean, he's on the ice. Can you kind of remember the play as it happened? And you go, and you going when that goes in. Are you you're like you got to be saying to yourself, you can't be serious with this? Well, I wasn't thinking that deeply about it. I just you got to understand that was a sixth goal that I gave up. That in an <laughs> afternoon game, it was on my son's birthday. We we're gonna have a birthday party for him after. We had, they all planned out. <laughs> no, yeah, we didn't cancel it, but I was grumpy, and uh, it was a sixth goal in that afternoon. And and I remember uh, this was I think it was his rookie year. He's you know this talented kid who fires a puck, and I he was coming down the right side, and I just knew he had a great shot. And I was like, I got to get out. It's like a one on one with with my defenseman, and if you could rip it by the D man, you know, you could use him as a screen. He could score. So I wanted to get out and be aggressive. And when he started to you know take it through Palmara. And it kept going, going, going. I was pushing, pushing, pushing out. And I wasn't pushing back to my post. I was pushing, um, you know, to the side. And I was getting more and more out of position. And I thought at some point, this puck's just going to go in the corner. And then somehow, it ended up going by my outstretched stick inside the post. I had no idea how he hit it. You know what I mean? I didn't know that he was on his back at the time. I just, when I, when you see my reaction to the goal, I kind of bury my head. I'm just like, that's a six goal. I'm like, seriously, six goals now I've given up in this game. Like, I just, I didn't realize how great it was until I looked up at the video uh, of the goal. And I was like, oh my God, that was unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> at that point, you're going, is the clock and the clock just keep running here? Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've had here. plenty of those games. Yeah, plenty of those. <laughs> you're looking at it and go, seriously, only a minute and a half has gone by. Now we still have nine minutes left. <laughs> um, how's uh, the post-playing career with being uh, a common you know, commentator, you did such a good job inside the glass uh, in the bubble in Toronto and Edmonton. Uh, you worked with Doc Emmerich. You worked Doc Emmerich's final game uh, as a play-by-play man. Uh, you're on the number one crew there on NBC. You're doing awesome work. How is it for you? It's great. Um, I'm, you know, I couldn't couldn't be happier with, uh, you know, my role at NBC and, and how fortunate I am to be in that situation. I mean, you, you want to stay in the game, I think, when you get done playing. And, you, you know, I think a lot of guys have this uh, thought that they're going to get out of the game and maybe do something else. And I had those thoughts myself. But this situation presented itself to get into broadcasting. And I don't regret it one bit. I enjoy it. I enjoy being around the game. I enjoy uh, still seeing, you know, the guys that I played with, guys that were my coaches, um, and see them on a level where it's, it's, it's very, uh, it's very friendly and, you know, they're happy to see you. They're happy to work with you and, and not have the pressure of wins and losses, you know, that you have as a goaltender. I think, like you said earlier, you know, you take home uh, a lot of the, the baggage uh, on a bad night, a bad game. And I think that uh, although you strive to have perfect broadcasts, those are hard to have. Um, and I haven't had one yet and I don't know if I ever will, but it's not so profound, like, you know, giving up a goal, like it's black and white when you give up a goal, it's either this or it's that. And I think, you know, when it comes to broadcasting, maybe it's a matter of opinion and I'm sure I'm not, you know, 
I'm sure some people don't like what I do and I'm sure some people like what I do and I'm sure some people don't even care about what I do and, and that's <laughs> all good. But to me, I just, I love the game so much that I talked about earlier, the passion that my dad gave for me for the game. I really do love hockey and I love being around it. I love covering it. I love watching it. Uh, I love talking about it. I love everything about it. And I, I'm just so happy to still be, be in the game in some capacity. Well, your goaltending career led you to here. And Boosh, we love, we love talking to you on Flyers Daily. You know that. And um, you articulate uh, the, the ups and downs of a goaltender's career so well. Uh, thanks for being our guest here on Flyers Goalie Week. I know people are going to be thrilled to hear this. And we can't wait for the game to get back on the ice. Yeah, me too. Uh, hopefully we got some good news coming up here soon and we can be watching some Flyer games. And always great to be with you. Thanks to Brian Boucher for joining us on this episode of Goalies Week. We'll hear from Bobby Taylor, the longtime Flyers goaltender, Flyers broadcaster. He'll give us some insight on his playing days, his playing partners, Pelly Lindbergh, and much more. So that'll be on Friday's episode. Everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of Flyers Daily, and we'll talk to you on Friday's all-brand-new episode.